Becker's Hospital Review is committed to delivering our audience safe access to vital educational opportunities. With this in mind, our 11th annual meeting will be in virtual format for the first time. Whether in the home or workplace, attendees will have access to sessions where industry leaders will be discussing the most pressing issues in healthcare, including the rise of virtual care, addressing clinician burnout, and delivering on-price transparency. To learn more, click on the conference tab at beckershospitalreview.com. This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Anthony Magit. Dr. Anthony Magit has a uh, it is a professor at University of California, San Diego. He runs something called the Human Research Protections Program. We're going to spend today trying to understand what that is, learning about priorities, and telling us a little bit more. Anthony, can you take a moment to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. My name is uh, Anthony Magit. Uh, Currently, I serve a couple roles at, at University of California, San Diego, and also Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. I'm the medical director for the Human Research Protections Program, uh, which is a, a office that oversees all research involving uh, human subjects. Uh, may, people may be more familiar with the term IRB or Institution Review Boards, and this is the office that coordinates all those uh, review committees. The scope of research includes everything on the general campus of UC San Diego, the medical school, the cancer center, as well as the children's hospital. And in, in addition to biomedical research, all types of uh, social science research that involves human subjects is uh, reviewed as well. And tell us, Dr. Magic, how did you get into this? How did you end up in this area of the world, this area of work? Yeah. So. Um, you know, sort of the, the background of my career is that as uh, when I finished um, residency, I trained as a head and neck surgeon and then did a fellowship in pediatric otolaryngology, ear, nose, and throat at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh about 30 years ago, and then returned back to San Diego where I'd gone to medical school and at that point was on faculty and arose to be a, a professor of surgery and then became more involved in policy and research administration, as well as hospital administration. Some of the roles I've had in the past 10 years, I was the chief of staff at Rady Children's Hospital. And then at the Children's Hospital, I was the chairperson uh, for the Institutional Review Board, which specifically reviewed all human subjects research that went on at the Children's Hospital, which happens to be actually the largest children's hospital in California. And then I served in that role and then had the opportunity to take over the directorship for the Human Research Protections Program for UCSD, which included the Children's Hospital, then expanded the scope. And I sort of saw that as an opportunity to sort of transition a little bit away from primarily clinical research and academic medicine to some more administrative oversight roles, but have continued to be clinically active as well as engaged in research. And some of the other programs I'm involved with are a telemedicine program so I really became interested in sort of pursuing sort of a policy aspect, more of an oversight aspect. And, and during that time, I also obtained my master's in public health in Johns Hopkins, which initially I intended to do to become a better clinical researcher, but through my coursework there and interactions with individuals, became more interested in healthcare policy. Thank you. And what do you see, like when you work on this, Human research protections. What what is what are sort of the most Anthony the most interesting issues that you come across? What 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 
keeps you engaged and interested? What are the what are some of the most interesting issues that you see? Well, there's some that are very challenging. Everything from phase one or first in human clinical trials. So I think that what we see now is because of the tremendous diversification in the terms of biomedical interventions, everything from gene therapy to cellular therapies, where the scope of interventions which are now being created to oversee, to protect human subjects that are willing to volunteer for first-in-human trials, those can be very challenging. I think what happens traditionally when you think about clinical research that has gone on for decades in terms of uh, medical therapies, even cancer therapy, there are similar type therapies. Obviously, the interventions have different risk profiles, different outcomes that are anticipated, but you know, committees and individuals who look at what are the potential risks to individuals get fairly well established over decades. And now what we're seeing are newer therapies that have potential risks that may have some preliminary information from lab bench work or trials in animals that may or may not translate well into humans. So that's a significant challenge is trying to anticipate what the risks are, how to explain that to individuals. I think what's happening right now with COVID is a perfect example. I think just like what so much the pandemic has done in terms of illustrating some of the challenges we have in doing research that involves humans is trying to anticipate some of the side effects in, you know, what are the potential side effects and risks associated with intervention. So that's a, so that first in human is so that's one. A, so that's a fascinating issue because so many treatments traditionally, traditionally have been fairly incremental. So, I mean, the, the bad things can happen for sure, but there's some are incremental. Now you see big jumps and so that causes a different level of concern on what can side effects be, what can happen, what can some of the negative outcomes be as well. Right. And, and I, I think when you talk about therapies, interventions such as gene therapy, it introduces a whole new set of challenges where in the past, if you had some type of medication, uh, cancer therapy, the risk should typically present within a few days or at most a few weeks of the subjects being exposed to the interventions. But now that you're introducing gene therapy, which could potentially alter somebody's tissues permanently, then it becomes much more of a challenge in terms of anticipating those risks, how to educate subjects about what the potential risks are to them, and then also creating protocols where you have long enough follow-up so you can really gather that long-term information. So that's a very different challenge than what had been traditionally seen for decades. Certainly. Talk about other things that you find sort of the more interesting issues that you come across in the role that you have. Um, I, I think the, the, the part of the position that I really enjoy is actually working with investigators when they're contemplating uh, starting off on a study in terms of how do you build ethics and regulatory oversight into good science. So some of the real challenges now are very large trials or even observational studies that may involve double-digit sites, trying to coordinate multiple sites that have variations in terms of state laws, uh, local context, local culture, that I think is very challenging, but also very, very interesting. I, I think that's something that, you know, makes look working with human subject research very interesting. It's not only traditionally one institution review board would review research for their own institution or own group of researchers, but now because of federal regulation where there's actually a mandate for having one institutional review board review the work from multiple sites, 
trying to have that inclusivity can be a significant challenge. Fantastic. And talk about your career and how you ended up here and what you love about your career. Maybe what advice you would have to other people who wanted to have interesting and fulfilling careers. Well, well, I think that my, my own career, you know, began, you know, after medical school. And I, I think it's true with so many careers that you think that the decision to go into a particular career is the biggest decision. For instance, the decision to go into medical med, medical school may be the biggest decision, which obviously has an impact on your life, but you find that at every step of the way, there are little forks in the road, essentially. So when I went to medical school, I thought I was going to be a cardiologist you know, through internal medicine, I was exposed to head and neck surgery as a medical student, found the combination of medical and operative interventions very interesting, and then pursued you know, residency in head and neck surgery. And then from there, went on to pediatric, you know, otolaryngology at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. So what you find is that, I think the thing that I've sort of learned is that at each step of the way, when you have a decision to you know, pursue additional training or to go to another institution, is to really do it on something that really excites you. I, I think that's really the key aspect to it. And the other thing which I took away from so many mentors is that some people enjoy focusing on one aspect of their career and really excelling at that. And then I also had other mentors who talked about the fact that it really is worthwhile to pursue a career where there are multiple dimensions at every level. For instance, you know, for my own career, I think being in an academic setting allows you the opportunity to have a clinical practice, to have an educational responsibility, and also for research. So it sort of provides somewhat of a balance that there's always going to be some aspect of your life at any one point that is particularly more challenging or some that are more engaging. So I think that balance is, for me at least, that was something that really I've cherished is sort of the variability of my roles at, at every step of the way. It's fantastic. And what are you most excited about as you, as you move to 2021? What are you most excited about now? And, and how does it sort of that Think about for a moment or tell us about how you think about your role in sort of the COVID test and the COVID vaccines and stuff like that. How do you think about some of those issues? And I don't know if you, you I'm sure UCSD had some involvement in some clinical trials, some participants, so forth. How do you think about those things as you look at your role? And has that been interesting? Right. So I think that from, and UCSD has been involved with a large recruiting center for one of the adult vaccine trials and now looking to participate in the pediatric trials. So I think where the excitement is in terms of what we've learned from the pandemic in terms of where do you really have to put your resources and oversight when it comes to protecting human subjects, just because of the fact that we've really applied almost the same level of scrutiny for minimal risk studies, surveys, for instance, to first in human, sort of really sort of taking our resources and having some discretion and how much oversight you apply based on the risk of the study. And I think what the pandemic has done is really open our eyes to flexibilities. For, for instance, incorporating telemedicine visits into subject follow-up, which really allows an expansion of the catchment area for research subjects. I, I think also one of the other challenges of human subjects research is how do you describe to a subject what is standard of care, I mean, what is accepted clinical practice? 
as opposed to what is a research intervention. And I think what you see with the pandemic, not only on the one side with the vaccines, but all the various interventions that have been tried with some success for people with various degrees of infection, that to be very flexible in terms of how do you tell a subject to say even hospitalized or pre-hospitalization, that you know these various treatments that you're gonna get as part of our study have now become standard of care, understanding that maybe a few weeks or months later that standard may switch. So I think it's really, you know, made us more flexible and dynamic in how we interact with research subjects. And, and, and also, when, when subjects hear they're part of a clinical study, I mean, they all come into it, I assume, with, with great hope that the clinical study is going to go great with them, particularly cancer oncology patients and so forth. Right. And how do you how do you manage those discussions to, well, we're really still trying to evolve and discuss this and develop this. We don't know if it's going to work out well. There might be bad side effects. How do do, do subjects really understand all that, or are they just sort of um, blinded by the fact that they're so excited to try this clinical treatment that may help them? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. I mean, in oncology is a perfect example that the written consent document that subjects are asked to review and acknowledge and understand sometimes can be 20, 25 pages in length. And, you know, the challenge of trying to take very complex science and medicine and put it into what is supposed to be eighth grade reading level is really a challenge. You know, it's almost impossible. And I think what you referred to is that excitement, that blinded nature of being hoping for that next cure and participating in a trial is what we call the therapeutic misconception. And I think that's something that we really try and be very deliberate and very careful about. So in, especially if you have a phase one trial, which is the first in human, where the inclusion criteria may include people who have had recurrent cancers or cancers where there's no other therapies available at that time, it is really being incredibly diligent to explain to that individual that the intent of their participation is not to make them better, is to learn more about the therapy. And I think what makes it also a challenge is people want to find a cure, the magic bullet, but sometimes, obviously in experimental therapy, the, the risks and the downside may be worse than just the natural course of the disease at that point. Right, and this is, this is a very challenging thing for people with phase three, phase four cancer, that if they don't have this clinical trial, they feel like they've almost given up hope to want to try the clinical trial, but at the same time, they might have a better sort of being of life, life existence if they don't do the clinical trial, um, but, they, but they feel there's no other choices. Exactly. So, so really trying to be as informative and educate the subjects and their families as well, because oftentimes, obviously, subjects have families and there can be pressure from the family both to participate in the trial with the hope of benefit or to be reluctant to participate in the trial because of the concerns about side effects and risk. No, fascinating. What a fascinating career and evolution to what you do. It's been for you. Fascinating. Dr. Imagine, I want to thank you for joining the Becker's Healthcare Podcast and just, you know, shedding some light on some of these issues. What a fascinating situation and what you do. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much.